Great. Well, it's lovely to be able to share from God's Word with you this morning. Last week was the uh, final message in our series in Nehemiah, which I hope you'll agree has been a really helpful series. We've had lots of positive feedback uh, from that series, people describing it as being timely for uh, us as individuals as well as us as a church. We've been reminding ourselves in that series that our God is in the rebuilding business, whether that's for us, our church, or our communities. And so now that series is finished and we're looking ahead to what's next, at the end of November, our um, Advent series will begin. Is it too early to mention the C word? You see, this is how to divide a church. Some of you have bought Advent calendars already, I know it. Um, We're looking forward to Christmas, and uh, in due course, we'll be sharing with you what our teaching series is and what our plans are for Christmas time. Looking forward to that. And we've also got our anniversary weekend celebrations in November as well, where Ken Benjamin, our previous senior minister, and his wife Sue will be back on November the 21st here on the Sunday speaking to us. And so here we are now, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm beginning a short four-week mini-series that we have called Trustworthy Sayings, Trustworthy Sayings. In the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, here is a trustworthy saying, five times. Here is a trustworthy saying, he says. And what we want to do is to take four of those over the next four Sundays, Trust and knowing who we can trust and truth and knowing who to believe and who speaks words of truth is a very real issue for us today. And in this series, we're going to be paying attention to these trustworthy sayings from the Bible and seeing what we can learn about the truth of God and ourselves and each other. I wonder if you had to make a list of uh, people or professions that you would consider to be trustworthy, who you might choose, people in particular roles that you would trust what they say. There's a long-running poll, the Ipsos Mori Veracity Index, that has been running a poll since 1983, so that's every year for nearly 40 years, on trust in professions in Britain. And every year it's carried out, and it tracks the latest movements in public trust. So, so what, who does Joe Public believe? Who, does, who do we believe is speaking the truth? And what's interesting is that the latest survey tracks some changes in public trust in the light of the pandemic as well. And the key headlines from the latest survey is that the most trustworthy profession scoring at 93% consistent with previous years, is doctors and nurses. 93% of us say that we would trust what we were told by a doctor or a nurse. Also scoring pretty highly are teachers, vets, care home workers, judges and paramedics. I, of course, was interested to know where clergy or ministers sat in the veracity index, and um, I was encouraged that it was actually quite high. Interestingly, right next to hairdressers. I didn't quite know what to make of that. I, I've, there are hairdressers here among us, I'm sure, and I'm sure you're very, very trustworthy, but I'd find it quite amusing. At the bottom of the list, you may not be surprised to know that the public consider to be the least trustworthy are politicians and government ministers, along with journalists, and following behind them are car salesmen and those in telesales, those people who are least likely to be believed. We need to pray for Christians, don't we? in all of these professions. 
So here we are in a culture where distrust is high. And I think that's a post-pandemic thing even more, isn't it? There's a distrust in what public figures say, perhaps, in a world of fake news, where certain uh, high-profile figures have, have let us down consistently. In this post-pandemic world, who do we trust? And into that, we have these sayings from the New Testament, where Paul declares in various ways, here is a trustworthy saying. So let's read the passage with the first of those trustworthy sayings. Sam already read the end of the passage for us as part of the worship, which is wonderful. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1. Do grab a Bible if you've got one in your chairs, if you'd like to follow it. I don't know if anybody can give me a page number. 1191. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17. I'll give you a moment just to find that. We'll read it together, and then we'll talk about it and find what this trustworthy saying, where it sits in this passage. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful passage. Makes a bit of a change to like an epic Nehemiah chapter, doesn't it, as well? This concise five verses of richness. And in the middle of this passage, Paul announces, here is a trustworthy saying. And what is the trustworthy saying? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are all what are known as the pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to two of his younger co-workers, Timothy and Titus, who he has left in charge of the churches in Ephesus and Crete. And the three letters are personal, they're practical, they contain rich instructions on various issues. And among the content in these letters are these trustworthy sayings or statements. Now, scholars disagree, actually, about whether Paul wrote these letters or not. Uh, Some think that the style and the vocabulary is different to others of Paul's writings, as well as uh, changes in content and order. They suggest maybe they were written by someone else in the same manner as Paul, or perhaps uh, representing Paul. But others argue that some key themes here indicate Pauline authorship, and particularly these trustworthy sayings which seem to encapsulate key aspects of his teaching. This driving force that Paul has, this concern for the gospel, all through his letters, God's saving work in Jesus, seem consistent with him being the author, which I find pretty convincing. And uh, for the purposes of today, we'll be speaking of Paul as the author, but letting you know for interest in your own reading some of the scholarly disagreements about that. Paul uses a specific Greek phrase in each of the five occasions that this saying occurs, pistos ho logos, which literally could be translated faithful the word. 
and our English translations translate that in various ways, such as this is a faithful saying, or this saying is sure, or as in our NIV Bibles that we're reading from today, this is a trustworthy saying. In a world where we don't know who to believe, we don't know who is trustworthy, do we trust our hairdresser or a member of the clergy or a telesalesperson or a doctor or a nurse, a government minister or a politician? Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That it's true and actually that our faith, our Christian faith hinges on this. This statement isn't just trustworthy. It is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. If you're not sure what Christians believe, if you're here and you're questioning and you're unsure, is this, that Jesus saves, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The gospel of Jesus saves. And what's interesting here in 1 Timothy 1 is that when Paul communicates this first of his trustworthy sayings, what he doesn't do, he doesn't just kind of throw it out like a bomb, you know, this truth, just to sit there amongst other instructions in his letter. The verse is right there in the middle of his personal story. The verse is part of his personal testimony. It's not a cold, standalone truth. Paul talks about the personal impact of it on his life. Verse 13, even though I, describing himself, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there's not this cold truth, Jesus saves. Take that, you readers of this letter. Not at all. Jesus saved him. Salvation is personal. It is owned. Every single one of us, Paul needed it. We need it. God's undeserving grace to be poured out in our lives and to choose to trust in this Jesus who saves. Paul had a faith story. We all have a faith story. If you've come to trust Jesus, what goes with that is a story of that salvation, the gospel that saves. When I share my own faith story or have conversations with people who are interested, um, people are often surprised that I am the only Christian in my immediate family. There can be assumptions, I think, that if you see, I don't know, speakers up on a stage at the front of a church, that they must come from a, a long heritage of Christians, that somehow you know, I've been born into a family of preachers or something, which absolutely isn't the case. The opposite is true. My dad was one of 10, which means I've got a lot of um, aunts and uncles and dozens of cousins and so on. And in my wider extended family, I'm only in touch with one cousin who is a Christian. Finding faith as a teenager for me, and even into my adult years, has been complicated without having a faith framework growing up to base it on. I had no Christian worldview at all. My mum would um, she'd shake her head at me about my faith, really. She said, she said to me once, I think I was in my late teens, and she kind of sat me down with that serious mum face, you know, when you think, what have I done? And she said to me, Ellen, are you sure you don't want to go to more parties? <laughs> I mean, how many parents of teenagers want their children to go to church less and parties more? Not many, I imagine. Faith was a journey for me throughout my teenage years and into adulthood, like it was for many of us, I'm sure. It's not a kind of sudden event, it's been a journey. But I do remember hearing the gospel explained and realising that it was true, that it was real, that it was for me, 
and that I needed to respond to it. That actually I fell short of God's standards. I needed his forgiveness and grace. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There is so much that I don't know at the moment. There is so much uncertainty around for us all. But I do know that the gospel saves, that Jesus is my saviour. I have put all my eggs in his basket. The Bible Society promotes this particular Sunday in the year today as Bible Sunday, a chance to celebrate the scriptures. And what Paul does here in 1 Timothy is points us again to that source of our trust. What we read here in the Bible is trustworthy and true. You might not know who to believe. You might feel despairing when you look around you. But this trustworthy saying is worth banking on. And I encourage you to do that. And then just as we believe in the truth of the gospel, Paul goes on to demonstrate how it doesn't just save, but it actually transforms. That the gospel, this truth that's not cold, that's rooted in a real story, actually transforms lives. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What does he mean by that phrase? He's surely not saying that he has technically sinned more than anybody else, that his sins are greater in depth or in number than anyone else ever. It's not that. What Paul's doing here is recognising that his sin and the impact of that on a holy God is crystal clear to him. He's grasped the enormity of God's forgiveness to him and he sees his own sin in the light of that. You know when you're somewhere really beautiful and you're looking out um, at an incredible view, maybe a, a beautiful sunset or something, and that feeling that you get of the enormity of what you're seeing and the insignificance of yourself in comparison... Or maybe you're uh, paddling in the sea and you've got your ankles in. And as you paddle a bit deeper and you look out, somehow the vastness of the ocean seems more significant as you paddle that bit further. The magnitude of it seems greater. I think it's a bit like that. That the more you experience God's grace, the more you realise how wonderful that is, the more you realise how vast it is and how much you need it. Paul says... I am the worst sinner that I know. I know the value of the grace that I've been shown. And that's true for us. Jesus Christ has saved me, a sinner of whom I am the worst, because I know how much grace I need. And if we think that should make us unhappy, you know, a bit miserable, isn't it? All this talk about how sinful we are. Actually, the opposite is true. There is joy, so much joy, in knowing that this expansive grace that stretches out is available to us. And when we know the truth of it, it transforms us. Paul says in verse 16, I was shown mercy. Why? So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Our lives are to display the grace of God. Our lives are to be examples in the world. Two good questions to ask ourselves. Does my life and faith story display the mercy of God? How can I be an example of the grace of God in the world this week? In our frontline places, those places where we spend most of our time, we're being up against people who don't share our faith, whether that's work or at home and family, whether it's neighbours or colleagues and so on. 
One of the effects of the gospel is that our lives will display his mercy. God's plan is that when we turn from sin, we are now an example of the grace of God in the world. One of the contestants on this year's Strictly Come Dancing is this guy. He's called Reese Stevenson. He's a children's TV presenter. He's a very good dancer, and he's also a Christian. And during a segment of the live show a couple of Saturdays ago, I think, he said this. Any, any secret Strictly lovers here might have heard this interview with him. He said this. Faith is the one constant in my life. My family and I are Christians, and that has been an integral part of who we are. Church is a second home to me. When everything has changed, my faith has always remained the same. Reese Stevenson says this in his frontline place. It actually got beamed out to millions of people, acknowledging the difference that his faith has made, the constant that it is. Interesting that there's another Christian Strictly celebrity, um, Dan Walker, the BBC breakfast presenter, who also talks really openly about his faith. Now, our frontline places aren't quite so... There's less fake tan, let's say, in our own frontline places, not so glamorous and glitzy. But actually, the point here is that wherever we find ourselves, whether it's an audience of millions or an audience of our next-door neighbour or whatever it might be, there's something about the willingness to be brave and communicate the difference that our faith makes, that our lives are to display the mercy of God. And, of course, we do that in word and in deed, by the words and the actions of our lives. That could be our prayer this week. Lord, would you make my life and my faith story display your mercy? Help me to be an example of the grace of God in the world this week. This trustworthy saying is an anchor for us. In uncertainty, in distrust, it's the foundation of our faith. It saves and it transforms. And we can respond to that saving grace and allow the gospel to transform us and pray that we would then reflect that glory to the world. Let's pause and pray. Maybe the band wants to come back. And I just want to give us a moment. Maybe you might just want to reflect on those two questions. Maybe... You want to just pause and give praise for this trustworthy saying, the heart of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Lord, as we just pause and ponder your word, would you root it in our hearts and minds and speak to us?